You are all most warmly welcome this afternoon to the University of Edinburgh and to this very historic hall for the fourth in the University of Edinburgh Enlightenment Lecture Series sponsored by Scottish Power. Today's lecture follows very successful talks given by Irene Kahn, Secretary General of Amnesty International, Joseph Stieglitz, the renowned Nobel Laureate, and Professor Tom Devine, holder of the Sir William Fraser Chair of Scottish History and Paleography. The aim of our Enlightenment series is to consider how the nature of the Enlightenment in our own age and as an ongoing process of social and cultural development continues to shape the times in which we live. This afternoon, we have the honour <coughs> of hearing from one of the most influential political leaders in the world today. President Jose Manuel Barroso is a graduate in the law of the University of Lisbon and earned a Master's in Political Science from the University of Geneva. He has been a visiting professor at the Department of Government in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and was head of the International Relations Department at Lusada University. He is now also an honorary graduate of this university, having received his honorary degree of Doctor of, Science, of Social Science just a couple of hours ago at this morning's graduation ceremony at the McEwen Hall. And I have to say, gave a most elegant reply to the laureation. We are delighted that Professor President Barroso has accepted this honor and has now joined that list of distinguished and worthy individuals who have received our degrees. Born in Lisbon, Portugal in 1956, President Barroso first became involved in politics when he was still a teenager. In 1980, he became a member of the Democratic Popular Party, now known as the Social Democratic Party. Five years later, he was elected to the Portuguese Parliament and in 1987, he was appointed Secretary of St for State for Foreign Affairs and Cooperation. In his capacity as Secretary of State, Mr. Barroso took part in various international missions, including most notably the self-determination process in East Timor and the peace process in Angola. When his party was defeated in the 1995 elections, Mr. Barroso became leader of the opposition. In 2002, when they were returned to power in a coalition government, Jose Manuel Barroso became president of Portugal. As president, he presided over an ambitious program of reform of the Portuguese economy and was one of the driving forces of the Lisbon agenda of wider economic reforms at the EU level. He resigned his presidency of his home country in 2004 when he was appointed the 11th president of the European Commission. He now presides over the commission at a very interesting and indeed challenging time. It is a time when there is a profound and complex debate about the future direction of Europe and about how the Union can continue to function effectively as it grows in size and diversity. However, these are the sort of challenges which Jose Barroso seems to relish. And I have to say, chatting to him this morning and chatting to him at lunchtime, I was very impressed that one could have such important and demanding responsibilities and simultaneously be so lively and jolly. <laughs> uh, I'm truly delighted that we will now have the opportunity to hear his thoughts on some of the issues surrounding the debate on Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honour to invite President Jose Barroso to the stage to address us on the subject of Europe in the 21st century.
principal, ladies and gentlemen, professors, dear students. Let me begin by thanking Edinburgh University for inviting me to deliver this Enlightenment lecture. It is a great honor to do so in a country which made such a huge contribution to that important period of Europe's history. It's also a great honor to have been awarded the doctorate honoris causa by the university this morning. Recognition, I think, of the importance of the European Union to the university and to Scotland. It's also a pleasure to return to Edinburgh itself, one of Europe's great cities, a city full of character, full of personality. My first visit was for the European Union Summit of 1992. I was then foreign minister of my country, Portugal. I remember long, dark nights of painful negotiation. We were discussing the budget <laughs> for the seven years after that. So it's good to see some daylight today <laughs> after those negotiations. I myself come from a capital city near the sea, from a country with a proud history and very ancient traditions. A city uh, long history of inspiration from and exchange with the rest of Europe. Nevertheless, it's not for a Portuguese to lecture such a distinguished Scottish audience on the finer points of Scottish enlightenment. So what I'd like to do instead is look at how great figures of that age fit into the broader European enlightenment. I will then look at how Scottish thinkers of the period inspire European policy development today, particularly in areas of rapidly growing concern, like energy, and climate change. And I will try to show why Voltaire was right when he said that nous nous tournons vers l'Écosse pour trouver toutes nos idées sur la civilisation. <laughs> Just like today, the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers were living through a period of rapid economic, social, and cultural change. They had the presence of mind to realize what they were seeing and experiencing and they face the meaning of that change earlier and more profoundly than other centers of enlightenment. Although many of these thinkers are remembered for a contribution to one subject area, for example, Hume and what we call philosophy, most were well-versed in many other areas. For example, Hume wrote on economics. He produced a large history of England. Hutton wrote also on philosophical matters and today I've learned that Joseph Black that studied medicine also discovered what, uh, how it works now with uh, human respiration, carbon dioxide, a very important topic when we speak about climate change as we are speaking today. One example, and there are many, of the fruitful connections between Edinburgh and Europe is provided by David Hume and his links with France and his intellectual life. Hume admired the French and lived there for periods. He returned Voltaire's compliment when he said, the French are the only people, except the Greeks, who have been at once philosophers, poets, orators, historians, painters, architects, sculptors, and musicians. He corresponded with Montesquieu and Turgot about tax, and who might levy it. In 1763, he was secretary to the British Embassy in Paris. 
While holding down this day job, he also managed to earn what one biographer called the adulation of France in his spare time. He was a darling of the Salon and intimate with Le Philosophe. He tried to befriend the remarkable but unstable Rousseau with disastrous results. So Edinburgh and Paris, key centers of enlightenment, were closely linked with contributions, of course, from the whole of Europe. They were hammering out the fundamentals about the basis on which, even over 200 years on, we conduct much of our political, social, and economic life. Their ideas on the social contract, individual rights, the role and extent of the state, free trade versus mercantilism, taxation, competition policy, and a lot more, have affected our public debate ever since. They have also found themselves enshrined in written and even unwritten constitutions in states and political institutions of much of the developed world. The Scottish Enlightenment, nourished by a nourishing continental Europe, provided a system of thought which embraced history, sociology, law, and economic analysis. All this happened at a critical time as many European countries embarked on the transformations of the industrial and democratic ages. That kind of joined up thinking, I believe, is greatly needed today. It is no accident that I've so far omitted that famous son of Kirkcaldy, Adam Smith. Smith was not just a man of his time. In his broad fields of expertise and eclectic range of interests, moral philosophy, sociology, logic, economics, ethics, jurisprudence. He also resembles Renaissance man in his continuing relevance today and his belief that international trade can reduce frictions and promote peace. He is very much a modern European man as well. This is someone who put consumers above special interests, someone who saw open and fair competition as a good thing, someone who recognized that in an open market, it is not just the person who sells the good who benefits, the person who buys it may benefit as well. He also reserved some acid words for university professors, which in present company are probably best left unsaid. But his most significant observation, for me at least, is that open markets can be vehicles for social good. In book four of The Wealth of Nations, he observed that by removing artificial barriers and allowing the emergence of a simple system of natural liberty, and I quote, the sovereign is completely discharged from a duty for the proper performance of which no human wisdom or knowledge could ever be sufficient. The duty of superintending the industry of private people and of directing it towards employments most suitable to the interest of society. End of quote. I believe that today Europe must use the power of market forces for the interest of society to take one of the biggest issues facing all Europeans, indeed all the world, climate change. Climate change is one of the most important, if not the most serious challenge we face in the 21st century for our planet and for the future generations. And now, when you think about the message of the Enlightenment, 
we have to see what is the enlightened way to look at climate change. The facts are clear. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, global warming has already made the world some 0.6 degrees centigrade hotter. In the worst case scenario, temperatures could rise by up to 5.8 degrees centigrade by the end of the century. You can see the results. The last 11 years have included the 10 hottest since records began. The majority of the world's glaciers are in rapid retreat. It is tempting to be flippant and point out that global warming will undermine Adam Smith's comments on the inefficiency of growing grapes in Scotland. But the recent reports from the International Energy Agency and from Sir Nicholas Stern provides a clear warning of the costs of inaction and shows that in this matter there is no room for flippancy. Faced with this challenge, Europe is determined to lead by example. We should be proud of what we are doing as Europeans. We led negotiations to create the Kyoto Treaty. We are at the cutting edge of new environmental technology and we have set up the world's largest scheme for trading in emissions of carbon dioxide, the Emissions Trading Scheme. But broadly, the scheme has proved a success, as Adam Smith would have expected. The market created was worth an estimated 7.2 billion euros in 2005. To put this in perspective, the World Bank observed that this was worth considerably more than the entire 2005 United States wet crop, around 5.6 billion euros. In the first six months of 2006, the market's value of carbon dioxide rose even higher to 11.9 billion euros. The investor community is quickly grasping the vast potential of a future global carbon market. A number of investment banks, concentrating exclusively on generating value from reducing greenhouse gas emissions, have now floated on stock exchanges. Investors are putting increasing quantities of capital into emission reduction projects. Nevertheless, we have learned lessons from the original teething problems and we will improve the system. Tomorrow, the Commission will take crucial decisions on the national allocation plans for emission allowances of 11 member states, including the United Kingdom, for 2008-2012. Decisions relating to the other member states will follow soon after. These decisions will set out the total number of allowances that governments will be able to allocate to companies in their countries. These companies account for about half of total European Union greenhouse gas emissions. So these decisions must, and I believe will, send a strong message about European Union's commitment to meet its international obligations. That is why the Commission will be tough but fair. To make the market work, there must be constraint on allowances. And we need a market to work if Europe is to keep leading the fight against climate change. The rest of the world is watching to see if the ETS, Emissions Trading Scheme, will work. It has to. We must act today to tackle the problems of tomorrow. 
Once these decisions have been taken and governments have distributed emissions allowances, the visible hand of government regulation will fade into the background. Companies themselves will decide how much they want to emit and buy or sell emissions allowances as they see fit. The only constraint they face is that at the end of each year, they must be able to hand over a number of allowances to their government that matches the volume of their greenhouse gas emissions in that year. In other words, the total amount of emissions is set by the Commission's decisions. After that, the individual decisions of the thousands of companies in the emissions trading scheme, each acting in, in what it judges to be its own best interest, ensure that, as if guided by Adam Smith's invisible hand, we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions at the lowest possible cost. This is an approach which should appeal not just to the aficionados of Adam Smith, but also to those who believe that public authorities, such as the European Union, are at their most effective when they set a path, they create a mechanism and allow it to work. The emissions trading scheme is one of the European policies to tackle the global problem of climate change. Another is development of an energy policy for Europe. You know that energy policy was at the heart of the original European construction. In fact, you know that uh, at the beginning of the European community, in fact, before the beginning of the European community, we had the European community of coal and steel. So coal was there at the beginning, at the same time we founded the European community, there was the Euratom. But in fact, energy that was at the beginning of the European construction was almost forgotten for 50 years. Now it is returning to where it belongs, at the heart of the European agenda. And why is this happening? I believe the answer is simple. The days of cheap, secure supplies of energy are over. Global energy demand is increasing, not least because of rising prosperity in China, India and other very important markets. Mature hydrocarbon reserves, including in the North Sea, are declining. The European Union is currently dependent on external sources for 50% of its energy needs, which could rise to 70% by 2030. So Europe is being exposed to increasingly intense competition for global energy resources from other countries and is becoming ever more dependent on oil and gas imports, increasing its external vulnerability. This has transformed attitudes towards creating European energy policies. I believe that most Europeans now recognize that, as in so many other areas, we can achieve much more by acting together and speaking with one voice in the world. It's a question of credibility, but also a question of coherence. To have weight in the world, when we negotiate with Russia, with China, or in the United States, we need a common voice. But we are only credible if you want to speak with one voice to the outside world, if we speak also with one voice in the internal affairs of the European Union. So we also need to be coherent common policies. It's simply absurd to have 25 or 27 mini-markets of energy and pretend we are coherent when speaking with the outside world. 
There is why the European Commission is developing a policy that ensures Europe's competitiveness, safeguards our environmental objectives, and ensures our security of supply. Our objective is clear, to accelerate the shift to a low-carbon economy. This requires several significant changes in our energy model. First, we must use energy more efficiently. By saving energy, Europe will help address climate change, reduce the energy intensity of future growth, and reduce its dependence on fossil fuels from third countries. That is why the Commission proposed last month to increase our energy efficiency by 20% by 2020. But the main energy package will be unveiled in January. At the heart of this package will, I hope, be a commitment to new targets to reduce greenhouse gases beyond 2012, so after Kyoto. And to achieve this, we need at least three things. First, ambition on energy efficiency. Second, a true single market in energy, not just on paper, but in practice. Third, the transformation of the renewables industry in Europe. We have to send a clear message to the rest of the world in this matter. That is why I want to announce today my ambition that our January package will fix the most ambitious but attainable targets for renewable energy ever set by Europe by 2020. I hope that a major contribution to achieving these new targets will come from Scotland. Greater investment in research is essential if we are to succeed in this. That means Europe's universities and research institutes will be central to our efforts. I also believe there is a role for the European Institute of Technology, agreed in principle at the last European Union Summit in tackling climate change. Edinburgh University is famous around the world for its research. You are presently involved in 115 projects funded under the European Union Sixth Framework Program. In fact, I understand that you are participating in all aspects of the energy team of this program, from renewable energy sources, ocean energy, wind turbine design, to the cleaner use of fossil fuels by using carbon capture and storage. I hope the University of Edinburgh will continue to play this very important role. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Smith is much misunderstood both by what I would call state fundamentalists and by market fundamentalists. Yes, he said, and I quote, there is no art which one government sooner learns of another than that of draining money from the pockets of the people. <laughs> but, he also said, the subjects of every state ought to contribute towards the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities. The fact is, Adam Smith recognized that administrations are necessary to administer justice, to make sure sensible rules are followed, and to create and maintain public works and institutions of great value to society. In much the same way, Europe today needs strong institutions, like the European Commission, like the European Court of Justice. We need them, not for the institution's sake, 
but for common goods, for the principles of common good in Europe. We need strong institutions to maintain the single market. We need strong institutions, for instance, to, admini to administer the emissions trading scheme to secure affordable and sustainable energy for future generations and much more. This is important to say here in the United Kingdom because sometimes I see that there are those who very much support everything that we are doing in the European Commission to promote internal market, but there are some doubts about the value, the added value of the European institutions and why we need strong institutions. Let me put it very bluntly, now with the experience of running the Commission for two years. It's a mistake to think that internal market just for itself can be sustained. No. To sustain, to keep the internal market, we need strong rule of law and we need strong institutions at the center. Now more than ever, in a Europe that is now 25, that will be very soon made of 27 member states from the 1st of January, we need strong institutions of the center. And I know that in Scotland, you support this. Many of the challenges Scotland faces today, from climate change uh, to all the others that we are, you can say are global challenges, we have to understand that we cannot face them alone. Neither Scotland nor the biggest member states of Europe, Britain alone, Germany alone, or France alone. Climate change, health pandemics, growing international competition, international terrorism, demographic change, all those are global problems that need at least a European dimension to be tackled. We need this European dimension more uh, than ever. These challenges require European solutions in partnership with governments at national, regional and local levels. To put it another way, the globalization of problems which we are all experiencing, whether in Edinburgh, London, Lisbon or Brussels, require at the very least a Europeanization of solutions. European solutions that are the result not of an ideological diktat, but because of a common sense, pragmatic response to the world we now live in. And that's why I want to conclude my remarks today, not just about energy and climate change, but with a more general message about Europe, a message of confidence in Europe. Let me put it very frankly. Two years or three years ago, it would be impossible for the European Commission to come with a proposal for a common energy policy. And this was possible. It was, in fact, at Hampton Court that we started to discuss this. So it's true that nowadays, in many sectors of our life, people are asking the European institutions to do less. And to some extent it's true, they are right asking us to do less. Less bureaucracy, I support that, less bureaucracy. But there are other sectors where the European citizens are asking us to do more. In fact, there is more demand for Europe. For instance, in energy, in a common approach to global problems, for justice and uh, um, to fight, fight against criminality and also international terrorism. So there are fields where there is a growing demand for Europe. That's why I'm confident in Europe. Just now I was coming from a meeting with very young, 10 years old, 
school students, pupils that were in a Euro quiz, were remembering how was my country when I was 10 years old. How were so many countries of Europe? And I want to conclude with this perspective, this historic perspective, if I may say so. Sometimes we are very unhappy with the current situation in Europe. It's true we are having problems. But let's think how we were. 60 years ago, we had the Holocaust in Europe. Some of the worst pages of human history were written in Europe. The Shoah, the Holocaust. More or less 25 years ago, my country, or Spain, or Greece, were living under right-wing dictatorships. No freedom, no democracy. More or less 15 years ago, all Central and Eastern European countries were under totalitarian communist regimes. The single party, no freedom of expression. Some of them were not even independent, like the Baltic countries. More or less 10, 11 years ago, we had the terrible war in the Balkans. So that's why, or how, or Europe was 60, 30, 15 years ago. Today we have problems, of course we have. But are those problems really serious when compared with the situation of Europe? Aren't we living in a Europe where we can have confidence to have the resources, to have courage to face these global challenges? I really believe we as Europeans should be proud of what we have been doing and that the European community that will commemorate the 50th anniversary next year should be proud of its contribution to peace democracy and freedom in Europe. So I really want to conclude with this message of hope in Europe and also a message of gratitude to Scotland because Scotland has brought many benefits to the rest of Europe and I hope in turn that Europe has reciprocated. Long may that partnership flourish. Thank you for your attention. So we had a, a brilliant lecture from President Barroso. Uh, it's now open uh, for a question and answer session. Uh, when you pose your questions, do please, uh, first of all, ask questions about what, what you have just heard. Uh, and secondly, if you would be so kind as to identify yourself. And thirdly, the President's time and our, and our collective time is valuable. So short questions, please. There's a question there. You're right in, completely right in the assumption be, behind your question because we are speaking about global warming and not just European warming. But it is important to know who leads. And if Europe is ready to lead, I believe we have all the interest in leading this matter because there is a greater awareness in our public and the best way to lead is by example. I think things are changing and will change. The United States will change. And in fact, as you know, some of the states of the United States are already 
developing some mechanisms very close to our emissions trading scheme, in fact. And from the awareness campaigns raised by many, including uh, the most famous uh, campaign launched by Al Gore and others, there is a growing awareness of this um, challenge. And if the Americans change, I'm sure a lot of the other, words, uh, well, other countries in the world will follow. The Chinese are changing. I can tell you in the very recent uh, meeting we had in Helsinki, the ASEM meeting between the European Union leaders and uh, the Asian leaders, I saw that the interest, the real interest of the Chinese in this matter. In fact, they are already developing programs of energy efficiency and they have huge environmental problems that are a very important burden for their prospect for growth. So what we try to do is, of course, now to do this, to lead by example, but to engage others. I think this is the we could say, following the enlightenment theme of the lectures, this is enlightened self-interest. It is in our interest, but it is also in the general common interest of mankind. But why is it in our interest? If Europe keeps what I call the first mover advantage, there are also good business opportunities in this field. If we st set standards high, we are giving a very positive incentive to our industries to develop cleaner technologies, to have the advantage of the first mover in some areas of clean technologies, to are giving a very good signal to our universities and our researchers to go ahead in that uh, process. So, of course, we have to find the right balance. As I usually say, it's good to lead, but it's good to lead and to look around and to see someone, <laughs> not to lead alone. <laughs> and, uh, but look, the majority of the members of the international community sign up Kyoto. It's true that the um, United States did not ratify nor, neither China nor uh, India, but I think the evolution of the public opinion is in our favor, and one of the important things is to engage others, but to engage others, we have to be credible in the measures we ourselves are taking. There's a question there. Uh, my, name's my name is Peter Cannell. Uh, your last question, I think, raises a very important, uh, last answer raises a very important point that this is as much a cultural question as it is an economic question. Um, what you've described economic mechanisms in the energy trading system, but these are only going to work if the cultural background to that is in the right gear, as it were. I'm interested in your comment that you think Europeans are more ready from this than the rest of the world. But to what extent do you think within Europe this is going to be driven by culture and to what extent will it be driven by economics? By both. I believe uh, we, we are developing both at the same time. Uh, even this, uh, the cultural awareness of this is different. If you go to the North Sea countries, for instance, they are much more advanced than some countries in the south of Europe in those matters. And so it's... And of course there are differences also economically because there are some countries of the European Union that are much more energy intensive than others. So it's not an easy task. That's why we try to be fair. That's why we try to measure in terms of evolution. And so what is the performance improving the situation regarding emissions um, uh, in the different uh, economies? At the same time, I believe the argument can be won in the cultural um, broad political debate. 
uh, not only in Scandinavia, I was recently in France. In France, there is a great awareness now coming from this. Monsieur Hulot and others are making a great, a great contribution. Nicolas Hulot, uh, in the programs in the television, the young people. I think that is one of the most inspirational causes for Europe, namely for young people in Europe. Because, I mean, it's good to speak about market and so on, but this is, market is not something that is able to mobilize the passions, the hearts and minds of young people. But to show young people over Europe that Europe can lead also in this matter, that the greatest challenge to our planet and to future generations, we are leading that as we, are, we were in Kyoto. I think it's a matter of pride for our European civic consciousness. So we have to do both. At the same time that we are developing this um, let's say awareness and winning the cultural argument, it is also important to have the support of economic evidence and to have the support of business, to put it bluntly. One of the problems of those matters in the past is that there was almost two separate uh, constituencies, the environmental one, the green one, and the economic competitiveness one, and they were almost not speaking. Every proposal coming from the green constituency was seen very... Uh, the great reserve by the, the economic uh, competitiveness cluster, let's put it like. Today, we have to show that it's also for the competitiveness of Europe to have a more advanced environmental policy and that we can match both. And so I think that we have to make the point that a modern economic competitive policy is also environmentally sound and that uh, the, uh, the, other, uh, the opposite is also, also true. So it, it, it requires, of course, a great effort. But let me tell you, yesterday in London, I was receiving a kind of a coalition of a business, global business, for um, um, the fight against climate change. Some of the biggest corporations in Britain and in Europe, many of them based here in Britain, but some out from Germany, from France, from the Netherlands, so they were asking me and asking the Commission to be as tough as possible in this matter. This is a complete change. So that will be completely impossible, let's say, 10 years before. So I believe time is on our side. Joe Shaw from the Europa Institute in the, in the University of Edinburgh. I want to press you a little bit further about stro the strong institutions issue that you raised, and specifically to ask you about in the, the area of justice and home affairs, um, and ask you about what you think are the prospects for, for a couple of strong institutions proposals that Commission has got on the table in, in an area where, as, as you say, people, people, citizens say they want more Europe, or at least they want perhaps a more coherent and a more organized set of policies at the European level. What's the prospect for uh, progress being made on regularizing the situation of the Court of Justice in the Justice and Home Affairs um, arena? And, and what do you think are the pr pr prospects for introducing more qualified majority voting in that area in the absence of the ratification of the Constitutional Treaty? Yes. I hope there will be some progress very soon, but I want to be very frank with you. I'm afraid it will be a modest progress. And why? Paradoxically, precisely because of the fact that those member states that want a constitution, some of them don't want to give progress in the justice and security affairs before getting the constitution ratified. As you know, the so-called communitarization of the justice uh, matters, so more majority voting in matters regarding justice and uh, security um, was introduced in the draft constitutional treaty. But some of this we can achieve even without it, using the so-called passerelle, 
that is already uh, possible to do under the current Nice Treaty. But what some countries, the case I'm in mind now is Germany, says, no, we don't want to do it before we get the, the ratification of the constitutional treaty. And their argument is that they will need another ratification process because of the competences between the German government and the Länder, the states of the federation in, in Germany. So that's why uh, I'm afraid we are not going to achieve great progress in this matter, but we'll keep our proposals because we think that makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, in face of international terrorism and international crime and those networks of traffic of children and traffic of women and uh, laundering money, it's obvious that member states alone cannot do it. A great progress was made, for instance, with the European arrest warrant. I always could uh, make this case. During the, that one of those suspect bombers in London terrorist attacks was given back to the British authorities uh, uh, less than 40 days after he wa was caught in, um, in Italy. Before it will take at least four years because of different jurisdictions. Now with the European arrest warrant, we can do it. So we are credible fighting uh, terrorism. So what we have in this matter is a general support. If you look at the Eurobarometers, the, the surveys we have in Europe, generally Europeans support a more coordinated action of the member states fighting uh, terrorism and international ministers and justice ministers, of course, are those more prudent when it comes to the sacred domains of sovereignty, and they are difficult to, to give those powers. I believe the trend is that. We are going to achieve some progress. Uh, we have been working now with the current presidency of the Council, the Finnish presidency. They also expect, I just met now Prime Minister Van Annen, but uh, honestly, I don't think the member states will be ready at this December Council now to have uh, this kind of more majority voting. But there will be some progress in terms of accepting, in some cases, some more um, concrete steps forward. Thank you. A question there. Hello. Jamie Livingston from Scottish Television. You were talking about energy policy. Uh, now, obviously, the big issue today in Scotland is Scottish power. Should Scotland uh, be able to block a deal of, of such national importance um, in, in, in terms of jobs and protecting the consumer. And secondly, you are talking about strong European institutions. In light of uh, there being an election in Scotland being six months away where independence is on the agenda, would Scotland be an automatic member of the European institutions or would they have to reapply? Thank you. You know that in the European Union we have a principle that, by the way, is in the Constitution is called subsidiarity. The matters you can live at national member state level, you should leave that. <laughs> so don't expect me to comment on Scottish independence. And now, the other, <laughs> the, other, the other question regarding energy, I'm aware of this news coming today. So far, we have not received any notification, as you know, in those matters. Uh, if we receive a notification coming from the, the companies, and if we believe there is what we call the community, European community I mentioned, 
we will intervene. But so far, this was not yet the case, so I cannot comment on the specific matter, on the specific uh, merger. I think it's a merger that is now being announced. Now, but what I can do is two general remarks. First, those news confirm the anticipation that the market is now making of the internal market for energy. In fact, we have been witnessing in the last months and even years more cases announced of uh, mergers, cross-border mergers. This is the proof, this is the confirmation that the market is anticipating already the internal market for energy, and I believe that's good news for Europe. The second remark, more general, I would like to say, is that this general way to, to fulfill our goals of sustainable, competitive, and secure energy is precisely through the market. And it's good to be open to others in the internal market. That's the way to benefit from the potential of a market that we'll now have uh, with Romania and Bulgaria around 500 million people, more than the Russian and United States combined. It's the most important internal market in the world, European Union. And so uh, what I want to tell my friends in Scotland is, look, I was very happy when recently I went to China and was seeing the Royal Bank of Scotland, I think it's the name, all over. The Royal Bank of Scotland is also buying banks outside of Scotland. So, I mean, if we believe in the internal market, we should commemorate when we buy outside and when others also come, because this brings more synergies and it brings more force to the strong European internal market. So, um, I'm being signaled that Professor Barroso has to catch his aeroplane, so just a couple of concluding remarks. First of all, to um, restate our profound thanks to Scottish Power. Um, they have been extremely... <laughs> um, it was uh, really a brilliant idea of theirs <coughs> to come up with this series, and we have had Four of the most, as I indicated, Irene Kahn from Amnesty International, International Joseph Sticklitz, the Nobel Laureate, uh, Tom Devine, and now a fourth lecture. And if I can just comment briefly on that. Uh, President, you get absolutely full marks for your history of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, I have to say, I thought it was uh, extremely accurate, well stated. I like the way you held... Um, Adam Smith back a bit and then introduced him. Uh, very, very good. And of course, as the principal of the university, I have to say you get full marks of your account of the university's role in the Scottish Enlightenment and also full marks for understanding our massively strong position with regard to your very important framework programmes. And we are very keen to participate in many ways. And I had, you were commenting on changes in different perceptions and of companies I was a guest of IBM um, at a dinner held, interestingly, for various leaders in the Vatican. And the leader of BP, Lord Brown, spoke, and the only academic endeavor he mentioned was the one you mentioned, which is Stuart Hazeldine's world-breaking work on carbon sequestration. This is the very important scientific concept that as we take oil out from under the water, we replace it with carbon dioxide. And it was interesting to hear the head of BP talk in such powerful terms about climate change. So very important movements. I thought it was also a very lively question and answers. You um, are a loss to the university system. You uh, have great potential. And, you know, <laughs> and I am a dynamic recruiter of stars, so, so please do not hesitate. I think <laughs> but... 
In addition to an absolutely superlative lecture, I, I must make a comment uh, about political leadership. At, at the highest levels, political leadership shows a moral dimension. And I think in the way you talked about European history over the last 60 years, the way you talked about climate change, you, you revealed that highest level of political leadership which inspires us because it does ground us in these extremely important moral issues that we are trying to achieve. So I now ask the audience to join with me in thanking you again. <laughs>